Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions and dramatizations of domestic violence, child pornography, and the murder, torture, sexual assault, and abuse of minors. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In the early 1970s, Houston, Texas was hailed as the future of the United States. As the nation's sixth largest city, it was America's energy capital and home to the space industry. In Houston, all eyes looked towards the stars as NASA completed its final Apollo mission. But beyond this veneer of success, Houston had a problem. Beginning in 1970, in a small working-class neighborhood dubbed The Heights, dozens of boys went missing. Their disappearances disturbed parents who begged local law enforcement to find their sons. But Houston police considered the vast majority of these boys to be runaways. Officers figured they'd left home by choice and they'd probably come back soon. But they didn't. For three years, children continued to vanish. By 1973, nearly 30 boys had gone missing from the Houston area. Eleven of them even attended the same junior high school. It seemed like people's kids were disappearing into thin air. But then one crime revealed a terrifying conspiracy, and the fates of dozens of lost children were discovered. Welcome to Solved Murders, True Crime Mysteries, a Spotify original from ParCast. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. Every Wednesday, we step into the world of true crime's most fascinating murder cases and tell the tale of how real-life detectives closed the case. You can find episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free exclusively on Spotify. This is our first episode on the murder of Dean Coral, known by locals as the Candyman. This week, we'll talk about the investigation into his murder and the staggering realizations that unfolded in its wake. Next week, we'll look at law enforcement's failure to protect the community and a murder trial that captivated the nation. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016... Adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. 
The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. During the late summer of 1973, temperatures in Houston, Texas neared 95 degrees Fahrenheit. The heat alone was enough to put anyone on edge. Tensions only ratcheted up on the morning of August 8th, when 17-year-old Wayne Henley phoned police to report a fatal shooting at the home of 33-year-old Dean Coral. When officers arrived at Coral's single-story gray slate home, they were met by Wayne and two of his friends, 19-year-old Tim Curley and 15-year-old Rhonda Williams. A 22 caliber handgun lay cold on the ground. The investigators entered the home to find the lifeless, bullet-riddled body of Dean Coral. Bloodstains were smeared along the wall. All three teenagers were taken into custody. While officers prepared to interrogate the teens, they also looked into Dean's background. He was an admired man in the Heights. Neighbors had always viewed him as an upstanding citizen. Dean and his mother Mary had lived in Texas since he was a teenager. Mary doted on Dean, but she hardly provided a stable home for her son throughout his life. She married and divorced Dean's father, an electrician, twice. She then married and divorced two more men in rapid succession. Even as she cycled through relationships, Mary and Dean remained remarkably close. In 1962, when Dean was 23 years old, they moved to the Heights. There, they established the Coral Candy Company, Dean became known around the area as the Candyman for the way he doled out treats to children. He let local teens hang out in the back of the store after hours, where he had a pool table, and earned the trust of parents. He worked hard to help her keep the candy company afloat, but in 1968, Mary's divorce from her third husband spurred a change in her business ambitions. Dean, go ahead and flip the sign on the door. Let's close a little early today. It's only 4.30. We need to talk for a minute. Okay. What is it? I don't know how to tell you this, but I'm closing the candy store. What? My ex's presence in this city is a draining spiritual force. If I don't leave... Leave? Now we're not just closing the store, we're leaving the city? Dean... Every single psychic told me that if I don't leave, my ex's spiritual energy will ruin us. You know they're never wrong. We can't close the store based on what some psychics say. What are we supposed to do? How are we going to make money? I'm going to move to Colorado. Get a fresh start. I'd love for you to come with me. I can't just leave the Heights, Mom. People here, they know me. They like me. I'm the candy man, you know? I can't believe you'd even suggest that I just pack up and... And just... You can go wherever you want, but I'm staying here. Dean remained in Texas, but without the candy store, he had to find a new job. By 1970, at age 31, he was making an independent living as an electrician, just like his father. Even with his new profession, 
he maintained his wholesome reputation as the Candyman. Dean forged this new independent life against a somewhat dark backdrop. In 1970, boys started going missing around the neighborhood. Many were only a short distance from their homes when they disappeared. One such boy was 15-year-old Randall Harvey. In March of 1971, Randall biked to work and never returned home. Two months later, a pair of teenage boys named Mally Winkle and David Hillegeist went out for a swim. Winkle called his mother to tell her he'd be out late. That was the last anyone heard from the boys before they vanished. Sadly, these children's stories were largely erased. In Houston at that time, more than 5,000 juveniles were reported missing each year. If a child had any prior history of leaving home, police often wrote them off as a runaway. To make matters worse, law enforcement lacked the tools and resources to locate missing persons, even if they wanted to. At the time, disappearances were not tracked in a centralized database. Different officers would take in different reports, and no single officer had access to every missing persons report in the city. They had no way of knowing these disappearances were happening on a large scale, and things only grew worse because of this. Much of the time, parents took it upon themselves to search for their lost children. Thanks to the hippie ethos of the time and the widespread practice of hitchhiking, police believed the boys likely ran away. But their mothers and fathers didn't buy it. Both sets of parents printed hundreds of flyers touting a $1,000 reward for tips leading to the boys' whereabouts. Information came in from multiple sources, but the police did little to follow up on any of it. Undeterred, Dorothy Hillegeist followed a trail of clues to local beaches and other popular teen hangouts. Dorothy even relayed a tip to the police about a suspicious man cruising around the neighborhood in a Plymouth GTX. She gave them the license plate number, but the cops did nothing. Soon, however, Dorothy Hillegeist and Selma Winkle would receive help from someone who would change everything. Hello? Dorothy, it's Betsy. How are you holding up? Every time the phone rings, my heart stops, you know? I know. I wanted to ask how it went with the police. Did you tell them about the car and give them the license plate number? Yeah, they just gave me the runaround. (sighs) Do you think they'll ever get their act together? Well, this was the last straw. We've hired a private investigator. I don't know how we'll pay for it yet, but Betsy, you and I know darn well my boy didn't run away. No, he didn't. And we're going to find him. Don't you give up hope. I'm trying not to. I'm going to go out and post some more flyers. One of the neighbor boys has offered to help out. That's very kind. Who is it? The Henley boy, Wayne. It turned out that Wayne Henley, just 15 years old at the time, lived less than a block away from the Hillegeists. Known as an outgoing fellow, Wayne had recently dropped out of school. This gave him plenty of time to help distribute flyers. Wayne posted papers around town, but to no avail. As the years passed, boys continued to disappear. Finally, in 1973, a breakthrough was on the horizon. 
Wayne Henley and his friends, Tim and Rhonda, called the police to report the murder of Dean Coral. In her interrogation, Rhonda countered everything locals thought they knew about the Candyman. Here's some coffee, Rhonda. Thank you, officer. Now, Dean Coral. He's done right by the people in the Heights. Never made waves, clean record. How'd you find your way over to his place? Wayne was friends with Dean. He took us over to Dean's house because he would let us drink beer and smoke. He said we could hang out. So we were drinking. Wayne and Tim were bagging. Bagging? That's huffing paint fumes, right? Yeah. Anyway, at some point, I guess I passed out. And when you came to? (sighs) Dean had me tied up. He had us all tied up. He beat me up first, kicking me in the ribs. After that, he dragged Tim into the back bedroom. Then he came in and grabbed me. He was completely naked, so I knew what was about to happen. He tied us to a board and started with Tim. That's when Wayne came in and saved us. Wayne killed Dean. Wayne killed the devil. Up next, Wayne tells investigators what happened to Dean Coral. Hello, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. And we're the hosts of the new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. You may know us from the very creepy and excellent podcast Red Handed, but now we've teamed up with Parcast for an unprecedented look at history's most nefarious groups. Some preach extreme religious practices. Others warn of impending doom. And then there are those whose endgame is far more diabolical. Every Tuesday on Sinister Societies, we take a peek behind the curtain and discover the most ominous organizations the world may or may not have known. Learn how entrepreneurial sects made fortunes off their brand, how charismatic cult leaders caught the eye of celebrities, and why strange orders of the extraterrestrial or collegiate kind attract the most unlikely of followers. Some groups convene in the shadows, others operate in plain sight, All are absolutely sinister. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now back to the story. In August of 1973, 17-year-old Wayne Henley phoned the police to report a shooting at the home of Dean Coral. When officers arrived, they were met by Wayne and his two friends, Tim and Rhonda. A 22 caliber handgun was on the ground. Inside were blood-stained walls and 33-year-old Dean's lifeless body. Once at the station, Rhonda told police a harrowing story that upset everything Dean's friends, family, and co-workers knew about him. She claimed that once she passed out, Dean had tied her up with the intent of raping her. She was only saved when Wayne held up a gun and shot Dean dead. Both Wayne and Tim corroborated her story. 
Just a moment, Tim. I need to record this. When can I go home, officer? We need you to recall as much as you can. What happened after he tied you to the board? What do you want me to say about it? He tied me and Rhonda up to his torture board and had his way with me. Was he going to kill you? When someone ties you to a board, the odds are pretty good that you're not going to walk out of there. Then what happened? Wayne came in with the gun and he told Dean that he'd had enough. Dean stood up and I saw him change into a different person. There was somebody inside him. It was a spirit from hell. And that's when Wayne shot him? He emptied the gun in him. Wayne appeared to be a hero and did little to dispel that narrative. But since he was the one who brought the others to Dean's house, investigators pressed him on why his so-called friend had torture devices at the ready. Wayne fumbled for an explanation, but then switched his focus to another piece of information. He said that Dean once bragged to have killed some teenagers for fun and said he dumped their bodies into a storage shed. Wayne pointed investigators to Southwest Boat Storage, located at a dry land marina that Dean frequented. On August 9th, police began digging. A noxious odor soon permeated the air, and it only grew fouler as they dug further underground. Then, one officer's shovel struck something hard. He tucked his face into his shoulder to avoid retching from the putrid smell. With his free hand, he found what they had all come for, a human body. Before the day was over, more remains were uncovered. They were in various states of decomposition, so not all were identifiable. Some of the bodies had been covered with crushed lime to hide the stench of decay and then wrapped in plastic. Oh my God. Hey Carl, get over here. What was the name of that cousin of yours? Runaway boy? No, 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 no. Oh, God. Marty! Boys, let's call it a night. That sick, twisted monster. If you weren't dead already. One of the bodies turned out to be the young cousin of a homicide detective on the scene. It was a terrible and traumatizing coincidence. And it was only one part of a larger picture. In total... Police exhumed 17 corpses, all male, most of them teens. Word quickly spread and reporters swarmed to the mass grave. They peppered Wayne with questions. He was given a radio phone, which he used to call his mother. He sobbed and told her, quote, Mama, I killed Dean. It was a gruesome situation, but at some point the idea began percolating. If Dean had told Wayne about the shed, maybe he had mentioned other burial sites as well. For that matter, maybe Wayne wasn't Dean's only confidant. It didn't take long for officers to locate 18-year-old David Owen Brooks. David's father marched him to the police station after news of the murders hit the airwaves. He knew his son had a close relationship with Dean. Now, police had the help of both Wayne and David. The boys told investigators about two more burial sites just outside Houston. Officers brought their shovels and excavated more bodies. By the end, 
they had found 27 boys. Investigators began the horrific process of identifying the bodies. They used clothing, dental records, and IDs found on the corpses. Soon they discovered that many of the victims were local teens who had been reported missing over the last couple of years. Many of them had been written off as runaways. The search soon led to Dean's backyard, as well as an area behind the now-vacant candy factory. But after only a week since the first remains were unearthed, the digging was suddenly called off. It was unclear why. There may still be more bodies out there. Many believe that Houston officials didn't want to add even more notoriety to the case since they'd neglected so many of the missing boys. In an era where the term serial killer hadn't even been coined, Dean Corll was on the verge of becoming the most prolific killer in American history, and it had all happened under their noses. But even a rookie cop would have enough sense to ask how two teens knew so much about where the bodies were buried. It's unclear what Wayne might have known when he helped the Hillegeists and Winkles distribute flyers two years prior, but he was looking less like a hero and more like an accomplice. Investigators pressed David and Wayne for answers. What they learned shocked them. It began with revelations about Dean and spiraled into a web of conspiracy and horror David and Wayne were brought to separate interrogation rooms. As investigators learned more from David, one detective came to believe that Dean's mother may have been the only force keeping his dark appetites at bay. Soon after his mother left town, he began luring young boys to his home. One of them happened to be a 10 or 11-year-old David Brooks, who had known Dean from the candy store. David was a delicate, blonde boy in glasses. He came from a broken home where he lived only with his father. Perhaps because of his turbulent childhood, David admired Dean. So when Dean began sexually assaulting him, David didn't alert anyone. This was likely because he was afraid to alienate his newfound father figure. David told investigators that when he was 15, in December of 1970, he walked in on the older man with two boys tied to his bed. Initially, Dean told David that he was part of a gay pornography ring, but eventually Dean admitted that he killed the boys. David kept quiet. Dean had already groomed him into an accomplice. Both of those boys were among the first to be buried in the marina storage shed. David told the police that it wasn't long after their murders that Dean took them out cruising for new victims. David. Our detectives are going to find out whether you talk or not, but it'll go a lot easier for you if you answer our questions. Now, you said that you recruited some of these boys for Dean. How come? I I thought he was just taking pictures. He said he needed dirty pictures. And didn't you think it was a little strange when you never saw those boys again? What about the two boys you knew he killed? David, I'm going to give you a moment here to consider things. I think you better spill it. All of it. You know, I guess there were between 25 and 30 boys killed, and they were buried in three different places. I was present and helped bury many of them, but not all of them. I'm going to need a minute. 
the early months of 1971, David Brooks had accompanied Dean as he cruised the heights for new victims. The pair lured two brothers into Dean's car. One was David's age, the other just 13. They rode back to Dean's new apartment a few miles away. There, David watched as Dean strangled the two boys to death. The two often went cruising for victims in Dean's white van, or his Plymouth GTX. If police had followed up on Dorothy Hillegeist's tip on the GTX license plate, it would have led directly to Dean. Instead, Dean was left free to keep on killing, with David's help. For example, many investigators find it highly likely that in March, David lured his friend, 15-year-old Randall Harvey, into Dean's clutches. Where are you headed, buddy? Gotta get to work, man. Actually, in a bit of a hurry. Toss your bike in the back. We'll give you a ride. I'm okay. It's just up the road a bit. But you don't want to be late, do you? No, but... Come on. Who's driving? My friend Dean. He's cool. Just hop in. Okay. Hey, Dean. Hi there. You can just take a left at this stop sign. I said take a left. Where are you going? Instead of dropping Randall off at work, Dean took him back to his apartment, raped him, tortured him, and shot him in the head. David helped with the burial and placed his friend underneath Dean's shed. Despite the killings, David maintained a relationship with Dean. It seems he began choosing Dean above all other people and even dropped out of high school freshman year. He was so close with the killer that Dean bought him a Corvette for his 16th birthday. As staggering as David's confession was, Wayne's would top it. Police questioned him and he detailed his twisted relationship with Dean. Coming up, Wayne reveals his dark secrets. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Now, back to the story. On August 8, 1973, 17-year-old Wayne Henley shot 33-year-old Dean Coral in a Houston suburb. Wayne and two friends of his told investigators that Dean wasn't the unassuming working-class man that everyone thought he was. 18-year-old David Brooks came forward and painted a full picture of Dean's menacing crimes as well as his role as an accomplice. Around the same time, Wayne admitted the truth about his relationship with Dean. Like David, Wayne came from a broken home. He once said about his father, We didn't get along. Dad was always beating up on my little brothers. He beat up my mother and my grandmother once at the same time. Wayne claimed his father beat him as well, and even once fired a pistol in his direction. 
After his parents divorced, Wayne felt the need to bring in some extra income for his mom and left school to work. He was also on the lookout for a role model to replace his dad. As it turned out, David and Wayne had been friends, both failing out of ninth grade. And when Wayne went looking for a new father figure, David had just the man. Dean! Who's this? This is my friend, Wayne. Your good friends? Uh Uh-huh. Okay. Come on in, Wayne. In 1971, David introduced Wayne to Dean. Wayne told investigators that it's possible David meant for him to become Dean's next victim. But Wayne claimed that he and Dean hit it off. He later said in a Texas Monthly article by James Conaway that he, quote, admired Dean because he had a steady job. In the beginning, he seemed quiet and in the background, and that made me curious. I wanted to find out what his deal was. The fact that he did work, wasn't a wild drunk, got along with kids and people in general, that's what started it. Wayne invited Dean over to his house on several occasions. Wayne's mother, Mary Henley, loved having Dean around. She thought that he was like a father to Wayne. She invited Dean to Easter dinner and let him fix her car. Wayne may have been naive to Dean's crimes when he posted flyers on behalf of the missing Hillegeist and Winkle boys, but at some point, Dean reeled him in using the same tactics he had used on David. He told Wayne, who was very interested in money, that he could help him move stolen goods for extra cash. Wayne admitted that he maintained a casual relationship with Dean for months before the older man ever broached the topic of sex and murder. Wayne suspected that Dean was gay. Dean offered Wayne $200 for each boy he could bring in to sell into his porn ring. While questioning David, the police pressed him for more information about how Wayne became involved in the killings. David disclosed that Wayne was eager to comply with Dean's requests for young boys. Just a second, David. Let's get the recorder up to speed. So your pal Wayne brought boys to Dean for $200 a piece? Some of them were his friends? Yes, officer. They weren't just friends. They were his good friends. Uh, It was easy for Wayne to convince his buddies to go over to Dean's place. He didn't care what happened to them? He liked it. Wayne seemed to enjoy causing pain. One of the first victims Wayne brought to Dean was his friend Frank Aguirre, who had dated Rhonda Williams, the same Rhonda who would eventually end up tied to a board in Dean's bedroom. Frank worked at a local fast food joint and accompanied Wayne to Dean's house one evening after his shift ended. The four played around with a pair of handcuffs, challenging each other to escape the bonds. When Frank's turn came around and he was locked in, Dean hauled him into the back room. Dean sexually assaulted and killed him. The three, Dean, David, and Wayne, then disposed of the body on a beach called High Island just outside Houston. When Frank's body was recovered 17 months after his death, there was still tape over his mouth, a cloth in his throat, and a noose around his neck. 
Now tell me, Rhonda, what do you remember about the night Frank disappeared? You said you were 13 at the time, he was 18, and you were dating. That's right, officer. He called me to say he was going to come over after his shift. He worked at Long John Silver's, but he never showed up. I know it's hard, Rhonda. What else do you remember? I eventually went over to his house. I waited all night. Frank never came home. Then Wayne. We were good friends at the time, but... Wayne would always tell me that I shouldn't keep waiting for Frank to come back. That he had a feeling he was gone, but I never thought that he might actually have any idea why Frank wouldn't come back. Wayne eventually told me the Mafia got Frank, and to just get over it, Wayne knew what actually happened. He knew. In another interrogation, authorities learned that another victim, Mark Scott, was also one of Wayne's friends. How did Wayne meet Mark? They'd been friends for a while. Man, he was a fighter. What do you mean, fighter? He got a knife. We were trying to tie him up and he stabbed at us. Actually got a piece of Dean's shirt. But Wayne grabbed the pistol. And Mark knew Wayne well enough. So, what happened to Mark? Same as the rest of them. By 1972, Dean's sadistic tendencies had grown out of control. As the killings increased, the preludes to the murders grew more elaborate. In fact, Dean once forced a 15-year-old boy named Billy to write his dad a letter, saying he was suddenly leaving town to go find work. Dear Daddy, I have decided to go to Austin because I have got a good job offer. I'm sorry that I decided to leave, but I just had to go. P.S. I will be back in late August. Hope you understand, but I had to go. Daddy, I hope you know I love you. Your son, Billy. Billy was tied to the torture board for three days before Dean finally executed him. In David's confession, he said he didn't remember how Billy was killed, only that seeing it didn't bother him. As the months progressed, Dean continued to torture and mutilate his victims in elaborate ways. Wayne was along for the ride and later admitted to his own fascination with it all. By 1973, Dean Coral, then 33 years old, had moved to the Gray Slate home in the Houston suburb of Pasadena. There, the rate of his murders intensified. During the summer months, Dean and his teenaged accomplices targeted and killed at least eight boys. By the end of the spree, however, it seems Dean reached a breaking point. He called his mother in Colorado and expressed suicidal thoughts. In response, she sent him a box of candy. 18-year-old David and 17-year-old Wayne were becoming grown men. As the realities of their lives sunk in, they began plotting to escape the heights and Dean. They noticed Dean becoming increasingly agitated. Wayne said that Dean would, quote, make short, jerky movements. He'd start smoking a cigarette, which he usually never did. 
and he'd say he needed to do a new boy. It was at this time that David started to disassociate himself from Dean. David's girlfriend became pregnant, and they moved away from the Heights. But Wayne had a more difficult time extricating himself. He even tried to join the Navy, but was rejected because of his lack of education. Wayne was concerned that Dean might pursue one of his younger brothers if he dared to leave town. He certainly knew too much to walk away without a plan. It didn't take long for Wayne to deduce his best means of escape. The only way to be free of Dean Coral was to kill him. Unfortunately for Wayne, the story was far from over. Thanks again for tuning in to Solved Murders. We'll be back next Wednesday with part two of the story of Dean Coral and the Houston Mass Murders. For more information on Dean Coral and Wayne Henley, among the many sources we used, we found the Texas Monthly articles The Lost Boys by Skip Hollinsworth and The Last Kid on the Block by James Conaway extremely helpful to our research. You can find all episodes of Solved Murders and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Solve Murders True Crime Mysteries is a Spotify original from ParCast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound designed by Michael Langsner, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Freddie Beckley. This episode of Solve Murders was written by Gina Hall, with writing assistance by Karis Allen, Sarah Batch-Eller, and Giles Hofseth. Fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Mickey Taylor. The amazing cast of voice actors includes Kai Jordan, Brian Kim, Drew Lawn, Melissa Bendina, and Kimlin Tran. Solve Murders stars Wendy McKenzie and Carter Roy. You aren't supposed to know about them, unless they want you to. Powerful groups with their own very specific agendas. And if you find yourself on the inside, good luck getting out. Hi, I'm Hannah Maguire. And I'm Saruti Bala. Join us every Tuesday for our new Spotify original from Parcast, Sinister Societies. Whether it's doomsday predictions, deadly greed or world domination, Each week, we're exposing the beliefs and actions of the most ominous organisations the world may or may not have known. Follow Sinister Societies free and only on Spotify.